Hello, hello, this is Jonathan and you're listening to the Johnny Talks Podcast, the place where we help you achieve your financial goals. Hola amigos, hope you're having a great day wherever you are. And if you're a new listener to the show, special warm welcome to you. I really appreciate you tuning into the show. And if you're a returning listener, welcome back. I appreciate it even more. With the recent murder of George Floyd and the current protests happening in the US, I wanted to share some thoughts around racial inequality on the podcast as well. As I was reaching out to my network, I got connected with Jason Hines, who's coming on the show today. Jason is no expert on these thematics, but he's nevertheless deeply motivated to share his thoughts as well and to raise awareness on the issue. We will look beyond the current events and give answers, or at least parts of it, to the questions how did we get here? Where does this systemic racism come from? Jason will take us on a short American history class dating back from slavery, the 1800s, up to today, and how racism has remained ingrained in the US society despite the Civil Rights Act achieved by Martin Luther King. We will also have a look at how financial literacy can play a big role in helping underserved communities and how we can all contribute to racial equality. This episode is for you if you want to take a deeper look at the recent racist incidents and learn more about how to contribute to a better understanding between communities. And this is an opportunity for me as well to raise awareness on the topic. So without further ado, let's hear the interview. Hello, Jason. How are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. How are you? Yes, I'm um, very excited to have you on the show. So, uh, yeah, Jason uh, has been introduced to me by a common friend, Lee Huffman, from the We Travel There podcast, uh, because I was actually looking for someone to discuss with me on the show about all the, um, the issues surrounding Black Lives Matter. Uh, this is a topic that is, um, okay, I'm not black nor African, I'm brown and uh, I'm a Belgian guy, but the issue of racism has been present in my life. And, I mean, with what has been going on lately and with the murder of George Floyd, uh, I wanted to, to bring this on the show as well to discuss this issue and, um, yeah, to bring some financial perspective on this issue, on the problem of racial inequality. So, uh, Jason, uh, again, welcome to the show. And, um, yeah, so, so, Jason, can you maybe just introduce yourself? Yes, absolutely. Um, my name is Jason Hines, and I am living in currently just outside of Nashville, Tennessee. Born and raised in the early years outside of Chicago, Illinois, in one of the suburbs out there called Lake Zurich, and then spent the majority of my life in Miami, Florida. Mm -hmm. Okay, and then, well, you're a person of color, so of course that's uh, also why you're here. And then I wanted to hear a bit your perspectives uh, following the um, yeah the murder of George Floyd. You know, it, it's quite impactful what happened because you've seen a man murdering a black guy in front of many people in broad daylight. It's not simply doing his duty. It goes beyond that. And, you know, with all the facts surrounding it, it's really, it's been something ingrained in him, this uh, I mean, if he was just doing his job, okay, he, he would arrest him and suspect him and, and uh, have him interrogated. But yeah. there, he, he really pushed it forward. So, so what has led to this action, do you think? Um, I really think that it's uh, it's a function of just 
systemic racism and Mm -hmm. you know everyone really has to dig into that to see um the issues that have led up to this point it's kind of been a culmination um you know we have had bad police officers for a long time but we've also had bad treatment for people of color and in particular for the african-american community and this is something that goes back so much further than what people would originally think especially because our generation is so detached from it it's um you know when we look back on slavery and the chain reaction of events that happened from the moment that those first slaves landed in the united states the story of people of color in the united states is a lot different than it is in other parts of the world. So when you see those images on TV, it's very hard for a lot of people to really understand, wow, how did we get here? Mm -hmm. But it's just a matter of really looking at how deep the story goes and all of those steps along the way, you know, even in the deconstruction of slavery, as it was seen before, even in the repealing of different laws that were pushing racial injustice, even as we saw all the way up through the civil rights movement, there's been a lot of things that have happened that were put in place that when they peeled them back, they just peeled them back. We really didn't look backwards to say, now, how do we fix this? Because just turning it off isn't the way. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so you mentioned slavery. And I mean, my American history is not that good. Is that then the 1700s or 1800s? Yeah, it's the 1800s. And mm-hmm. um, just to be clear, our American history is not too good about it because, um, you know, myself growing up here, I didn't hear much about the slavery, the slavery times at all. What we heard was that slaves came here. It was a bad thing. Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves with the Emancipation Proclamation. And then after that, everything started moving good. There was still a little friction. Martin Luther King was a great man. Civil Rights Act passed in 1968. And you know, the Civil Rights Act of 1968, when that was passed, you know, in the history books, that's when things ended completely. And it wasn't that bad going into it, when the reality is the history, especially now that uh, so many different uh, medians are coming out that we can find it on. I mean, you can find media anywhere. There's so much information that's coming out that now the education level is getting a lot higher. You have to seek it on your own or have a friend that's introducing it to you, but it's spreading like wildfire, which is why we see such a backlash going on right now. Mm -hmm. Okay. Back then in the 1800s or 1700s, the in the start of slavery, why was there no equality among white people and black people? Well, what was the issue? I think that the real issue is that, you know, throughout history around the world, I think that, you know, slavery is not uniquely American. Mm-hmm. Slavery is something that has been uh, a part of our civilization since man began walking upright. And if we look during different periods, there's always been different hierarchies that have existed with slavery. The big difference with the United States was that slavery was commoditized at such a high rate and it was coinciding with the time when capitalism was being born that slavery provided a blueprint for modern day capitalism. You know, they were able to look at yield management. They were able to manage inventory. They were able, they were able to manage production efficiencies just everything across the board because it was built out in the same way that capitalism is today it was commoditized at a much higher rate which is why it lasted a a lot longer than it should have you know giving it how advanced 
our civilization was at the time. And there was also this hangover that existed afterwards, which, which prompted all of the different things that happened to African-Americans in the years following slavery and why it has been such a hangover. It's taken so long to be able to repair it as well as each time, you know, I like to compare it to if somebody, if somebody is sick, if they have a disease, um, you don't treat the disease in a sense of here's your symptoms right now. So let me just pull those back. You treat it to try to find the root cause of it and eradicate the root cause. You have to peel back to how it started and what the issue was. With slavery, we haven't treated it in that such. We've treated slavery in a sense of that, let's just peel back layers without going back in history to figure out why did this happen? And from the moment that it happened, what is the residual effect that it has caused? And I think that's what the real root of the issue is. Yeah, so what, when you say commoditize, it means that black people or people of color are viewed as a resource then, as a means to an end. Yes, and um, in no way saying that that is true today. However, the hangover from that, that sort of perspective is what has damaged us. So uh, let me explain it in a different way if we look at it. Um, back when slavery was at its peak, It was the highest GDP industry within the United States, more so than railroads, more so than factories. It was the highest thing. Cotton was this incredibly wealthy business that was then able to be uh, reap the benefits from shipping cotton around the world. It was an incredibly high demand. So if we look at it from that standpoint, And we look at it that the expansion of slavery to, to the point where it was making that blueprint, blueprint for capitalism, when they were taking out mortgages to be able to build out plantations to expand, et cetera, their collateral for those mortgages, it wasn't land, it wasn't the home, it wasn't the facilities there. It was the actual slaves themselves. Wow. So in turn, you know, they would actually take loans out on banks And, you know, out from banks and use the slaves as the collateral for said loans to be able to purchase more slaves, to be able to expand their capacity. If they were foreclosed on, you know, the slaves were repossessed. So because of that, it got into a sense of that the slaves were a commodity. It was a lot more like looking at it like cattle or like horses than it was looking at it as people. So the problem that ended up happening with that you think of uh you know like the conflicts that the united states has with a lot of the uh, countries in the middle east those conflicts are over oil let's just be real let's peel it all back <laughs> the conflicts <Yeah. laughs> are over oil okay um back then if we look at the civil war that conflict was over slavery you know slavery was the oil that is in the middle east today Yeah. So if we look at it from that standpoint, then it makes sense why the withdrawal away from that sort of ideology was so difficult for so many people to understand and to really just grasp and embrace. And that's why we've had this slow trickle out of it that has created these other problems along the way that have snowballed into what we have today. Mm -hmm. And then if we look then at um, the financial part of it, okay, today, We, there's no collateral on slaves, uh, at least in the U.S. There's no such thing anymore. But you were saying mm -hmm. you were using the word hangover. What are the difficulties today that people of color face with regards to 
finances? Well, it's um, it really stems back to if we look at the layers as they were pulled off mm -hmm. of what we had when we had slavery. The very first thing that we experienced right away was that that free labor in a sense of that it was free in a sense that slaves were not getting paid. It still cost the, the, the plantation owners money. It cost money for boarding, even though they were wretched conditions. It cost money for food, even though it was in wretched conditions. Like all of the basics that they needed in order to, you know, let's call it stable, because that's the way that African-Americans were treated. When that labor force was gone, then they had to figure out a way to replace that labor force or at least get a little bit of it. In the Emancipation Proclamation, if it was listed that, you know, a man is not free if they are incarcerated. So, you know, different wording and everything. I don't know the exact language of it. But basically, you know, if they were able to find ways to incarcerate large amounts of black men, then they had a virtually free labor force again. So we look at that was the beginning of the criminal system, the criminal justice system. Okay. And if we look at incarceration, incarceration now is a massive industry in the United States. And it proportionately leans towards African-Americans at a much higher rate. And if we started out back then with trying to incarcerate people for jaywalking, for loitering, for all of those different, uh, you know, very minuscule offenses, mm -hmm. because we could then put them on what's called the chain gang when they chain all of the people together and they're doing work, breaking rocks, picking, picking, uh, picking crops, etc. If they were able to do it then, then right there we created a new industry that was getting outsized outcome off of the hard labor of black people. So once that industry starts, then as we know how capitalism works, how the United States' history has worked to where it built into a superpower, we have now created an industry that is only going to grow. And even though it's not the same techniques that they're using to put people into it, even though it's not under the same guise that they're using, the United States, you know, prison is a very big business today. So if we take that factor, that's a part of it. If we look at real estate and they knew in the beginning that holding real estate is incredibly wealthy and it generates wealth mm -hmm. that will be passed on to your descendants. You know, it's I mean, every economic study you know, knows this is true. So when the Emancipation Pro Proclamation was originally written, part of it was that all of the slaves, you know, each slave family was going to get 40 acres and be able to get a mule because the mules would not be needed after the Civil War was over. However, this was repealed back and the people who had gotten those 40 acres, they had they basically had it uh, repossessed. The people who hadn't gotten it, it got scratched off. So right away, the actual land was peeled back. So that's another one. Land has become the biggest industry that's out there. The original land was repossessed from the Native Americans. Well, let's not even say repossessed. It was stolen. You know, that's a whole not, that's a whole nother podcast about that. But <laughs> um, the, uh, the original land was taken from the Native Americans. And that has generated massive amounts of wealth, even down to people purchasing single homes on their own. So then you have that part of it. Then when you start having real estate available to be transactional, 
where it's something where you could actually purchase into real estate and then be able to use that to generate wealth. You're going to do all of your research. You're going to try to purchase in the right neighborhood and balance it with the right price that the economy shows all signs that it's going to grow. Therefore, your investment will grow. Um, there was a practice called redlining that was taking place in the, you know, starting in the early 1900s and running all the way up through, you know, I, I truly believe by my own personal experience that it ran all the way through the 70s and 80s. And redlining was just the practice of trying to section out where black families would be allowed to either get loans or even be able to move into the neighborhoods. They would take the map and draw red lines mm -hmm. around those sections so that they would keep the black families from moving to the areas that were going to have the strongest economic growth. Because then people thought that if black families moved in, it would be something that would drive down the property value. So the, the real estate agencies, the loan officers, and I'm pretty sure under advisement from, you know, they're not going to know these areas as good as the local governments will. And everybody was all thinking down the same path. So I believe all three of them in cohorts would be the ones who would you know make these decisions. So again, another industry that is created, that there are rules that are put in place that the damage isn't shown the day after they sign it. The damage is shown 20 years, 50 years, 100 years, 200 years after all of these steps are signed in. So that creates a snowball effect to where we are today. Mm -hmm. And then you mentioned um, that this redlining practice uh, has held up to the 70s or 80s. When you think about it, it's not even that old. Eh? It's uh, like 40 years, 40, 50 years. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's not very old at all. I'm, I'm lucky. You know, I'm incredibly blessed because my father and my mother took the step to try to break us out of the cycle. Mm -hmm. They didn't have much money. They didn't have financial acumen because financial acumen is something that is passed down from generation to generation, or you have to know that it exists to seek it out. So they were incredibly challenged, but In 1976, you know, my parents decided we have to get out of this part of town. We have to move out to the suburbs and try to begin building at least a good foundation for our family, at least education wise. And, you know, the challenge that we met with the first place that we moved was incredible resistance to us moving into our home to the point that one neighbor, I'm not going to use the exact language that they put on this petition, but one neighbor started a petition Oh wow! that got passed around the neighborhood that basically said, you know, insert the creative word, but um, we cannot allow African-American families to move here. And this was a petition that was signed. It was signed by a lot of people. So, you know, when we look at redlining, it may not have been something that was legal in practice, but it was deeply in practice by private and municipal citizens. So they were afraid that their uh, housing and that their houses or their neighborhood value would go down. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, they're afraid of the neighborhood value, mm -hmm. but also let's face it. If we started off as a society that this group is 
looked down upon, as looked as less, as looked at as to be hated, then a lot of what they had was that it was driven by hate, the color of our skin, the, uh, you know, the way that our hair looked, the clothes we wore, the music that we listened to, everything about it was something that, you know, unfortunately inspired bad feelings amongst other people. So yeah. because of that, that hangover, you know, that's when I talk, when I speak of the hangover from it, it extends all the way through. I mean, um, let's look at it. You know, each one of the examples that I've spoken about have been things where some industry or some person has used the labor of black people. And in this case, it's going to work, earning a paycheck and then using that paycheck to try to pay for shelter. They've used the labor of black people to earn outsized wealth. If we look back to the uh, financial crisis in 2008, and in particular, you know, the subprime mortgage crisis that came out of it, subprime mortgage loans were, that was a tool to be able to use the labor, which is the money that black families made to earn outsized wealth and income for corporations. You know, that was something that was a very perfect example, so much so that some of the banks on internal memos called them ghetto loans. And they were going to community centers and churches to try to figure out how they can find someone that was a leader and trick them into selling these loans for them within the black communities. Because again, the financial acumen is not there. You know, the, the time that we had where we were able to start developing that in the early 1900s, you know, you have something that's um, being in Europe, you probably haven't heard of the Tulsa massacre, but the Tulsa massacre was when black, you know, black residents had taken up a part of town and they had built what they had nicknamed black wall street. It was its own functioning portion of town with its own functioning economy, its own functioning shops, there were homes, they were starting to build all of the things that we were still very far behind on and had built this blueprint for it that had something like that continue to go, it would spread to other cities. It would spread to different industries. It would spread to different generations. You know, my great-grandfather would pass it on to my grandfather who would pass it on to my father, which would then pass it on to me all of these tricks of the trade of finance and wealth and education and all of those pieces black wall street was the blueprint for the black community to be able to move forward and they burned it to the ground and killed over 300 people you know it was it was seen as if the black community at that time was able to move forward then that was a threat to what white America felt like then. So when we look at what we had just said about having to rewind back and fix the things that were had gone wrong, not just get rid of it. You can't go and burn down a black neighborhood and kill all of the people in the neighborhood right now. That is against the law. However, we didn't fix the problem of that this was the beginning of our culture figuring out the secret on how to thrive in America. And it was gone. Mm -hmm. Well, and um, 
when I was a kid, I read the book of uh, Martin Luther King. Yes, yes. And, and then you would think, yeah, a great movement was created. And then you have the speech and everything, all the people gathered, you know, I mean, Martin Luther King facing resistance. This is a major event that will help, that will help with fighting against racism. But it doesn't seem that it has, I mean, it has certainly helped a lot, but still you, you see that it's still, uh, there was still redlining in the 70s and 80s. So it helped a lot, but it, it, we are not there yet. So uh, what what can we do? <laughs> Yeah, we we have to. Um, Do we need another Martin Luther King? <laughs> um, I think we, you know, to answer that question, yes, we do. The movement that's happening right now is showing the promise of actually being that—that that mm -hmm. it's the power of we, yeah. rather than the power of he. He was an amazing man. His tactics that he used and his strategy that he used. You know, there's there's an awesome podcast. Uh, that I was listening to. And um, it's somebody who uh, it's overcoming racism is uh, the name of uh, the website. And, you know, I, I personally know the person who runs it. Fantastic uh, resource. And he basically put out a post explaining that Dr. King was not just about the peaceful protest for the sake of not upsetting what the white people back then thought. He was about the peaceful protest because if he does get put in jail, then we're going to get mass amounts of protesters put in jail. We're going to get images that go around the world of peaceful protesters being beaten by police, peaceful protesters being incarcerated and being persecuted. And that's going to start to, to drive economic strain. It's going to start to drive relationship strain for the United States around the world. So it was peaceful by design, but it was also that once we get to the point that the peaceful isn't working, then the violence can happen. And what we saw in 1968 after he was assassinated, you know, the list of what they were fighting for was not extensively deep. It was, le it was literally to get a couple steps more to even. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And after he was killed, then that's when you know the, the ride the the ride of uh, Washington D.C. 1968 happened, and literally that riot is what pushed the government to actually pull through and do the uh, Civil Rights Act of 1968. It was the only way they were going to be able to stop it. So the unfortunate part, and it's you know we kind of liken it to today. Today, don't get me wrong. I am not somebody who is in support of riots. I am not somebody who wants to have any sort of um, harm done to business people. I'm not somebody who wants to see violence that happens. However, throughout history, violence has always been the thing that has changed the tide when a group of people have been pushing for something that is pushing to get equal and they haven't been heard. And if we look at what happened back then, they didn't do the law until, and, you know, they basically didn't pass the act until the violence really erupted. If we look at what happened today, um, not that the violence was what changed it, but the violence definitely kept, you know, the, the looting and everything that happened kept the news cycle to the point that massive corporations and you know all of the city governments and all of the state governments had to listen 
and had to push reform. And it's floating around the internet right now. The list of all of the things, <laughs> the action that has been taken since the unfortunate, you know, the unfortunate murder of George Floyd has been extensive, you know? And I think that it's it took this cataclysmic event of, you know, not just the murder of George Floyd, but the murder of Armand Aubrey, the uh, murder of Breonna Taylor, the horrible racial incident that happened, you know, the racist incident that happened in Central Park where somebody called the police and said that a black man was threatening her life when he was actually watching birds. You know, like just this string of events leading into it is what really made it that this ignited into something really big. And then the looting and the violence, you know, it's up in the air as to who really started it because there were so many different groups that were antagonizing that. But it made the message of the protesters actually get amplified. So, Mm -hmm. And then, um, Jason... You know, all these events, yeah, it's crazy. I think it goes beyond my understanding. I mean, I understand the, the frustration, the, the anger, the, you know, the protest. But, you know, and I've been a victim of racism as well. But when I think about it, you know, racism, you're not born with it. You know, when I'm, uh, you know, when I was two months old, I don't remember it, of course. But I probably wouldn't care if um, my friends at school in, in the kindergarten would be uh, yellow or... Um, or white or green or uh, black or brown, you know, I mean, when you're a kid, you, you don't think of this. It's very deeply ingrained. And is there a way that we can, um, that we can unlearn this hate, this uh, hate yes. or this, um, yeah, what can I say? This hate, yeah, this racism. Yes, definitely. I, I in my heart, I believe it. And again, um, I am no expert, mm. um, just somebody who's done a lot of educating myself on the subject and really dug into it. And I'm somebody who's been black in America for over 40 years. So from my opinion, I believe that it can, because like you said, you're not born with it, but also in the United States, you're not taught this in the education system. You can pick up racial tendencies while you are at school because of other peers that are around, Mm -hmm. but you're not taught racism by the education system. You are just deprived of the real truth of how things have happened. Um, Whether it's by design or not, I personally believe that it is because it's a big important chunk of our history that there is zero focus that's put towards it other than a couple of mentions. You're not taught the real truth. And because of that education system, you know, with the education system, we just have to change. We have to change to address African-American history. We have to change it to address race, racism and racial bias. We, ha- we have to address those things in the education system mm-hmm. because we're fighting, ag- we're fighting a fight against something that was created years ago again and has been something that's been passed down from generation to generation and has actually it's had the ability to amplify as of late, which is that generational racism. You know, this is how my grandmother and grandfather thought. So my mother or father thought this way, and then it's passed down to me. Exactly. And mm-hmm. if if we're not if we're not careful, the next generation of children will have that as well. You know, it's kind of like the um, the Confederate flag. And that's a big contentious thing right now because NASCAR, which is the 
biggest, let's call it South-based uh, sporting organization. You know, NASCAR is about the South, Confederate flags, things like that. They took a stance to not promote that anymore and not allow it on site. They never promoted it. I'm sorry, I misspoke there. But they took a stance to not allow it on site. Zero tolerance. And a lot of people are extremely angry because they keep saying that it's a part of our history. But it's a part of our history that, A, was on the wrong side of history. It really was Mm -hmm. because it was a coup against America. And it was a coup on behalf of keeping slavery. So it's on the wrong side of the history because of that. It's also on the wrong side of history because it was something that was brought back. It wasn't celebrated. It wasn't a big thing that was around for so long because it only lasted, the Confederacy lasted four years. However, it was brought back in attempts to reignite racism back in the 1950s. So things like that, that gets passed on from generation to generation. We have to chop those off. And the only way is to combat that with having education that does the opposite, starts to rewind back to where the problem started and starts to solve that. Mm -hmm. And in my experience of racism, sometimes, you know, okay, when you're a kid or a teenager, it hurts. It's not nice. It's not fair. You get comments, you get uh, remarks or whatever. Okay, but then you, okay, you build a shell, okay? Yes. You yes. build a shell and you can fight that off. And then, okay, you become a bit smarter and then you realize actually, yeah, but in the end, racism, it's a lack of education. It's ignorance. You get these jokes or these comments and it's more about stereotypes that people have. And as such, the, those people who make those comments, they haven't experienced whatever it is with you, uh, w- whether it's a lunch or whether it's, uh, you know, going to the church where you go or going to, uh, I mean, they don't know your community. They don't know. I mean, for me, I'm a bit of a weirdo because I'm not a weirdo. No, for me, it's a bit strange. <laughs> I'm yeah. a hybrid, you know, I'm, I'm not, a, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm okay. People uh, on Instagram, they see me. I mean, I, I was born in India. I'm Belgian, but my parents are white. I mean, I'm adopted. So Most of my life I have spent with white people and all my family members are white except my sister who's also adopted. So, okay, so I'm usually in the white community, let's say. Yeah. But for example, like uh, for you, maybe as as a kid, you were maybe more hanging out with the black kids. You go to events with black people. So, you know, maybe there's not that mix. And then then I feel that people have not really, I mean, they have not made the effort to get to know the other community. And that's a, that is, I think, one of the key to uh, to understand each other better, maybe. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Mine was actually, it was, it was closer to yours than you think, because mm-hmm. I was in the black community when I was younger. And then when I was five years old, we, you know, my parents moved us out to the suburbs and took that chance. Um, the problem is, is that like you spoke about being able to build a shell, being able to not let those things defeat you. You know, when you do encounter racism, you know, you just strap up your boots and you just soldier on, you know, you make sure to get past it. Um, That's what we had to do to survive. You know, my parents, obviously, just for taking that risk, my brother, my sister and I, we had to do it just to literally get through because, you know, quite simply, 
it's it's a matter of life and death. You never know when it's going to be that situation that if you fight back and you elevate it, then that can be when you're gone. So you build up this shell to be able to resist it. Um, so I was somebody who built up the shell as well. My family, all of my cousins, everyone lived in the black neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. And I knew, you know, I got a chance to experience that growing up. But then also within school, within where we lived, it was the white neighborhoods. And I even had a lot of black kids that, you know, a lot of black kids used to make fun of me because they would say I was too white. <laughs> and again, yeah, believe it or not, that's a thing. And it really is a thing. Mm-hmm. And I used to get super defensive. And then I would build up a shell and not worry about it. And then I would just say, well, you know what? I'm going to do my own thing. And as much as the people who have a racial bias that don't think that they do, but they clearly do, I'm at fault for having a shell and trying to block out as if it doesn't matter because it's not affecting me. Because this has been something that's been going on. And rather than walk away from it and keep it to the side, for years, I should have been fighting it. I had a, I have a unique perspective because I could decipher it a lot better. Like I'm amongst a lot of the people who think that, you know, they feel very comfortable and start to have biased tendencies. And I can speak against that and I can actually educate them. I can reach them, pull them across to a conversation to say, hey, let's just digest what you just said or what your ideology is. And now let's pull that back. So I'm at fault for amplifying the problem as well, which is why right now I'm dedicating so much time and energy to just spreading what I know. And again, I'm not an expert, but what I know is a lot of the very good, incredible resources of where to find out what's really happening. You know, I want to spread to everyone. What I know is how you can get in the know as well, as well as be able to understand the story because it's so much deeper than what's happening with the police, so much deeper than what has been happening with subprime mortgage loans and everything. You know, it really is something that we have to go back and deconstruct how we all got here so mm-hmm. that I can help educate you on here's why your side, you know, most likely the wrong side of this, but here's my story. Now, here's the background to yours that you don't even know about. Now, let's talk about it. You know, that's what we need to do now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And then, Jason, I wanted to ask you, um, now you're married to a white person? <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> <laughs> so your, your wife is white. And um, I was just wondering, how do you see the difference in what I want to go to is the, the financial privilege that she had versus yours? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, first and foremost, um, we both are learning so much. Mm-hmm. about each other's culture from from each other but also we are learning so much about ourselves and how we have functioned and perceived in the culture i don't like to use the word white privilege personally because i don't want to use a word that is going to potentially derail a conversation with someone that i can have a really good conversation about this with and when they feel that they're accused right off the bat I like to say that, you know, from a black person's standpoint, I'm talking about the black disadvantage that is created by this entire 
you know, this entire system. Mm -hmm. And then let's talk about it and let me help you to be able to figure out what sort of biases or what sort of advantages that you had. And that's a better way for having the conversation. My wife right away is just like, white privilege is real. I have it. If you're denying it, you're crazy. You know what I just (laughs) tell her? I'm like, that is for you as a white person to be able to say. And that is for you as a white person to be able to try to get through to people. You may have a better way of doing it, but she's very much in touch with this is the way that things have been different. For us, from a financial standpoint, I never learned, you know, my... My great grandparents, my great grandparents were the first generation that were not slaves. You know, then my grandparents were the first generation that were just trying to homestead, trying to be able to build within this life. My father was, you know, my father and my mother, they were the first generation to literally go to college, but going to black colleges because they weren't allowed to go to the other colleges without severe repercussions that happened to them. And they were able to just barely squeak out of that because of just the racial tensions that were going on in the 1960s. So if you fast forward it all the way through, my parents were lucky to get a mortgage on the first home that they got. They were lucky to get a mortgage on the second home that they got. They were fighting to get a mortgage and struggling to get through on the third home that they purchased. They had no residual wealth that was building up off of all of those. Because literally, when they first bought houses in the 70s, they just were not giving good loans. So combine that with the fact that, you know, my father suffered, uh, of course, suffered um, racial bias at work. Of course, did not get promoted for a lot of the times that he should have. Mm-hmm. Of course, did not get the opportunities. This was the 70s and 80s. That just That's the way that things worked. You had to be so much more exceptional to get beyond it. Mm-hmm. So all of the things that we had talked about earlier in the conversation are all playing out here. And the financial acumen was just never anything that I learned. It was never anything that I got passed down. I got passed when I went away to college. I got passed like five credit card offers. But I was a kid who never had money. So I was in the hole. I was in the hole super deep. When I met my wife, I dug myself out of the hole and I thought, wow, I'm doing great because I only have a small credit card balance of a couple thousand dollars and I live in a nice neighborhood and I drive a nice car (laughs) and, you know, I've got, I've got, I'm putting like, you know, a hundred dollars here, $200 there into savings. And I thought I was doing great. And when we first really started combining our lives, she said, we're going to have to peel back the books and I need to know what, you know, what's going on with you. I was like, sure. I felt great. I was like, here's what it is. And she, her jaw hit the floor. She was like, what are you doing? She was was just like, whoa, what do you mean you're carrying a balance on the credit cards? You know, she's like, well, what is it? Oh my gosh. You know, and she literally just, we agreed that I was going to take over marketing for our relationship. You know, I was the one who was marketing us to all of our friends and everything. She was the one taking over finance and operations. Cause she's like, clearly I've got a better base for this than you do. <laughs> and you know, the, the time that we've been together, you know, we've been married for six years. I have learned so much from her and it's finally that financial acumen that I'm like, okay, I could actually go out and speak to 
a younger black person that doesn't have the ability to, to learn from this. I can speak to that kid and I can teach him or her how to actually start building this. And I think that that's a huge thing. It's a huge mm-hmm. thing. And, you know, she got it from her father, you know? No, it's uh, something, okay, we talked about this before the show and um, it's something that surprised me a bit or that at least I didn't think about it, you know, because for me, you know, as I said, I'm a hybrid, so I get Mm -hmm. the the privileges of the locals uh, here in Europe. Yeah. I mean, all my family is white. I mean, I have that generational wealth. I mean, my grandparents passed away uh, four years ago and um, okay, there's some heritage, you know, it, it, it's passed on. Yeah. And then um, in the end, uh, my parents as well will pass away, etc. So, and and probably my grandparents had some wealth from before. It's not that we are super rich, but at least there's something pass- being passed on. My parents are not yeah. financial experts neither, but at least, you know, you, you have that already. It's kind of systemic in the, in the way it's been done. So that's great. And then the the thing is yeah. with the knowledge, you know, with the credit card balance and your wife, okay, it made me smile when you, you told this. And uh, then I'm thinking, yeah, but you know, for me, I never had credit card balance just because probably I was raised in a culture where we, we don't do credit cards here. I mean, we, we yeah. pay or we pay in full or we, we use a credit card for a trip, but we have that money already, or we, we, we are ready to pay the, the months afterwards. So we don't have that either. And then, um, yeah. And then when you tell me just a couple of years back, I had this credit card balance or this, I was not as knowledgeable of, as my wife. Then I'm thinking, oh, wow. That means that there's a lot of people who still do not have basic financial acumen. Yes. 100%. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, um, it is beyond not having basic. They have the opposite, which is destructive financial um, despair. You know, they have destructive financial um, habits because everything feels like it is just something that is just so, you know, it's so important to just be able to have these things that would be considered basics, but they're not. It's so important to have cash on you or be able to somehow generate that cash without generating it. Mm -hmm. You know, we just don't know. I mean, you know, I'm an open book and I don't mind saying it. I had built up credit card debt that was, you know, that was, let's call it higher than 20,000 when I was in my, you know, my late twenties and early thirties, because literally the way the system is set up to be able to trap people in, I got trapped. Mm-hmm. And I just, you know, was tra- trying to rob Peter to pay Paul. I was stuck to the point where I was having to just keep paying, keep paying, keep paying. And minimum balances, minimum balances, it's the perfect trap of what the, you know, what they're designed to do in order to make the banks that outsized revenue. Until finally, I did the worst thing, and I thought it was the best thing possible, which was I withdrew money from my retirement fund. I withdrew Ooh. money from my 401k mm-hmm. to pay off that credit card debt because I was, you know, my credit was in the toilet. I could not get a loan to save my life. Couldn't buy a house, couldn't get a car, couldn't get anything that I thought that I needed at that time. And I just wanted to make it go away. I got to the point that I was so desperate that that's what I did. And 
that's when I talk about the systemic issues that happen. It's not that this only happens to a black person. You know, it's not that it only happens to an African-American in our con- our country. However, it happens disproportionately to us because having that base, so at least there's an opportunity for the net to catch us. It's like, hey, this is financial acumen. Come over here. It's so much further away. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I yeah. literally was, I was the poster boy for the system. And I was just like, whoa, you know, like, okay, cool. I just pulled out of my retirement and, you know, I paid it off. Problem fixed. I felt great. Yeah, problem fixed. And it was not, it was absolutely horrible. So, yeah, that's, that's, you know, that's where we really need to make a difference and see how we can change it for the next generation. Like strategy needs to be for the future. Like my generation right now and even the generation that is right behind me, We're doing damage control and we need to mitigate losses right now and fix the problems that are current, but start building the strategy towards being able to, within the next couple of years, start the ball rolling and changing it for Mm -hmm. the future, for the next generation. No, absolutely. And um, there there are so many things to do, but we can all contribute in our ways. And I think... um, What you've been telling us today, it, it's it's really great because it's to raise awareness and because this show is listened to by uh, Americans, people in Europe, mm-hmm. there are black people listening, there are white people. I think most people are white, but it's about raising awareness and, you know, bringing the history, a little bit of history that you brought. It, it's great and raising awareness. Even to me, I didn't know many things. And I think that's uh, one step. And then I think it's as well, it's constant effort, huh? you know, like trying to connect with your neighbor, trying to understand this person of another culture in maybe a black person, a white person, you know, trying to get activities together. You know, it's, it's not much effort. Maybe it will pull you out of your comfort zone, but you know, it's, it's for the greater good. And then, you know, all those small efforts, they will lead to a positive future for everybody. And we talked about financials, of course. Well, the podcast is, um, is about helping people with their finances. So people, you know, As many people as possible can listen to this podcast. I have a lot of other friends, you know, in the FinCon community that are producing podcasts for everybody, uh, for um, helping them with their finances. So it's for everybody. So if we all do, and you have your group, uh, your Facebook group as well to raise awareness. So it's it's another great step as well to to help connect people and to make to raise this awareness as well. What is your Facebook group, um, Jason? The Facebook group is uh, the Colors of Conversation, mm-hmm. and it's um, it's it's an open group. Anyone can join. And with the Colors of Conversation, what we're trying to do is put together all the resources that we can about a number of different topics, and some of which we discussed today, including educational curriculums, mm-hmm. as well as um, educational tools for parents to teach their children about racism. Oh, that's great. Tools yeah. for people to learn African-American history and tools for having um, tough conversations with people. This is nothing original. Everything that we're finding that we're, we're assembling here is all available on the internet. It's just so many resources are out there on so many different uh, websites and everything. I wanted to put them all in one place, as many that we can find, and then have a platform for people to be able to discuss with each other. Because I, the, the most important thing for us right now is to keep people engaged. Exactly. Like, to connect. Yeah. To connect. The, um, the last three weeks has seen 
I think for the very first time, the world has united under one cause. And it is incredible to see. However, you know, there's different levels of operatives here. We've got the operatives that are out there protesting, raising awareness, and I hate to say it, but they're driving the momentum. And it's not to diminish that job because it is so needed. But that's, you know, that's the front line that is really pulling people in to see this awareness and keep the momentum going. We have the people who, like we were just talking about, so many people need to have these conversations and have these conversations now within their peer groups, within their um, even coworkers, et cetera. Anybody who is sitting in the middle or slightly on the wrong side of this, mm-hmm. we have to get people to see it, see the light and change over. There's a herd mentality. The more people we get, it becomes magnetic. It's just like a planet. It's going to start pulling people in. So we have to make sure that we keep this spinning and we keep it just really being able to let people know you're on the wrong side of this. And you could see because 75% of the world is on this side. Start coming over. Mm -hmm. And then we need to have the third part of it. And the most important operatives for the future are we have to start laying the blueprint for what do we do right now to drive change for the issues that, you know, for all of the issues that we discussed to at least get it to the point where we're, we're stopping the hemorrhaging. We have to stop, we have to stop the bleed that's going out. How do we get it to that point with law enforcement, with the black communities, with education, et cetera, then you know, and obviously with racism, just racism as a whole, how do we stop the bleeding? And I think that that's happening in a lot of circles, but then we have to put together the blueprint for the future, which is we need to educate the next generation of all people to get along and love each other as humans and be empathetic to what happens on all sides. And we have to educate the black community of the future. Yes. We have to teach people financial acumen, We have to teach people the education about their history and to really know the story of why it's so important to break the cycle. And we have to give them opportunities. We do. You know, it's something um, from the financial community. Probably the best thing that we can do right now is adopt a community, find a community center, go there. Give the knowledge that you know, take some mentees under your wing and then follow them. Don't just go deliver a presentation. Go make two or three really good relationships with somebody who is a young, influential mind who is 14 years old and stay connected and follow their progress through college. You know, we all know for all of us that have made it to the other side of that. When you look at your credit score, your credit score is over 800, you're like, zing, you know, when you're looking at like your retirement and it's just ticking up and everything like you're doing a happy dance and just afraid to spend money on anything outside of that. It's infectious when you start seeing success on that side. Yes. And I think that we can take young minds and start teaching them that that right now, because if they're learning, then they're going to be able to go back and tell others in the community. Exactly. They're going to be able to share that. So I think it's super important for us to get that blueprint in. Mm-hmm. Now, very positive uh, message uh, here, Jason, and I really, uh, really like your uh, lessons and I think they, yeah, we we should all work on that. So, uh, yeah, thank you very much. And then uh, Jason, um, yeah, we've come at the end of the show 
And uh, as you know, we always have our three quick fire questions. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> yeah, you're ready. I see. So uh, number one, uh, Jason, what has been your best investment so far? Oh, my gosh. My my best investment so far has been and it. It hasn't been a financial investment per se, but it has been my time of investment of learning yeah. and just never, never stopping to learn, like just continuing to dig in regardless of what it is, making myself a better person from that side. Uh, financial investment, it's been real estate, 100 um, percent. Purchasing my first home felt absolutely amazing. And we're on our fourth home now and just learning how you can let your money work for you. That's been that's been the, by far the best investment. No, oh, excellent. Excellent. You really broke out of the cycle, I hear. Yes, I did. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so question number two. What is the best book you can recommend to anyone? And it does not need to be a financial book, Jason. Okay, this was recommended to me by a very good friend of mine. It's called The One Thing. And The One Thing is about a philosophy that helps you to really streamline your thought process on how you build the strategy for just how you work through life. You know, it's really about focusing in and making sure to prioritize the, that one thing in each of those sectors of your life before you do any other work. Mm-hmm. And it is it has changed the way that I work. It really has. It's made me so much more efficient because I'm getting rid of the things that don't matter as much or being able to push those things to the side and say, hey, person who needs this, let's just get on the phone for five minutes and talk it out because I've got to get to my one thing that I have right now. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Very, very, very big. Okay, sounds like I, I could use that book as well. So very good uh, recommendation. <laughs> Then last question, uh, what, is the, um, what is the best purchase you've made for under $100? Oh my gosh. Okay, this is going to sound horrible, but um, battery chargers, just having access to information when you need it. I've got a brick battery charger that is absolutely outstanding. And it just, it, it saves me, <laughs> you know, it's, it, it allows me to charge my phone. It allows me to charge my, my laptop. I just, I want to stay connected. And I, obviously with COVID, it's been getting a lot of dust because we're sitting at home, <laughs> but, um, you know, normally, um, I travel a lot and because of being, because of being on the road a lot, I try to do as much work as I can prior to getting home. So I work on the planes, I work in the airports, I work anywhere where I can figure out a spot. And my battery charger has been the savior, really has. Yeah, and and don't be afraid. I mean, I've heard other guests mention uh, Google Drives or uh, batteries or having backups, you know, it's all important (laughs) stuff. You know, it's inexpensive, but it can save you a lot of hours of headaches. Absolutely. (laughs) Okay, very good. Well, Jason, So you mentioned your Facebook group. Any other ways your uh, people can connect with you? Yeah, very easily. Um, find me on Facebook or on Instagram, MixRideJ. Find me on LinkedIn under Jason Hines. Um, I am always open to having a conversation with anyone, and I'd love to hear from people. And you know, as we're as we're pushing forward with really building this out, again, I'm not the expert. I'm not leading the charge but I'm just somebody who's trying to, to facilitate conversations and facilitate connections so that people can really stay involved and engaged. Yeah, no, very good. 
I'll uh, link all your information in the show notes. And uh, now, Jason, yeah, thank you very much for uh, bringing on your knowledge, your experience. And uh, I think, yeah, it's a really positive message. And it's it wasn't expected to be to have this financial component with it was not what I had in mind. But when when we talked and I thought it's even better, it's even more in line with the show. So why not? I mean, how racial inequality uh, puts some communities above others financially instead of others. You know, it's uh, it's all linked together. It's crazy. Yeah, it really is. It's so linked together. And uh, Johnny, I appreciate you having me on and just uh, connecting with me on it because uh, especially in the financial world, it's such an important thing for everyone to know the history. I would like to say a couple of resources to help out and probably the best one is Netflix has a show called Explained. And one of the episodes is the racial wealth gap. That is the perfect first place to dive in if you are a financial person to really understand how we got to this point. So that's that'll be a good one for your audience. <laughs> well, uh, I think it will be a good one for me. So I'll, uh, I'll have a look tonight. <laughs> okay, awesome. <laughs> okay, very good. Okay, Jason, thank you very much. And I'll speak to you soon. Okay, take care of yourself. I really hope that this episode helped you to take a deeper look at the current events surrounding racial inequality in the US. I certainly enjoyed and learned a lot from Jason today. And now before we head off, here are the quick takeaways for today. Number one, racism is not new and finds its origins back to the slavery period, the 1800s. Number two, slavery was commoditized, meaning people were used as resources, at a high rate at the same time as capitalism was born. This, in turn, created the blueprint for today's systemic racism. What we are witnessing today is the hangover, as Jason calls it, of more than 200 years of that systemic racism. Number three, real estate is a powerful way to pass on generational wealth, but if you're deprived from it at first with practices such as redlining, yeah, how can you pass on that wealth then, you know? Number four, we are not born racist, but we need to be told the truth. We need to be educated on what has really happened. And as Jason believes, we can unlearn racism by educating ourselves and get to know each other better. And yes, that may mean getting out of our comfort zones. And last but not least, we can all contribute to a better understanding of each other. So let's get the ball rolling for helping the next generations with raising awareness, educational content and financial acumen. So that was it for today. Thank you so much for listening. It really means a lot to me. Make sure you subscribe in Apple Podcast. And of course, please do not hesitate to contact me. If you have any questions or feedback, send me an email, john at johnnytalks.com or connect through social media at johnnytalks on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And amigos, once more, thanks so much for listening and I'll speak to you next time.